Chapter 9, page 96. Rain was running off my hat and down my neck. A nor'easter had blown in the day after the battle. One long, rain-soaked day and night had gone by, and it was still pounding down late the next afternoon. The water in the trench I stood in had risen to my thighs. Another beautiful day in Brooklyn, muttered the soldier next to me, whom I secretly called the grumbler. I didn't nod or respond. I simply stood there, soaked and miserable, wondering what I should do. Brooklyn Heights seemed safe enough. Thousands of soldiers were positioned behind thick walls of earth and logs. Small forts, bristling with cannons, rose above the earthworks. Tangled thickets and forests choked all the approaches to the heights, except for a kill zone the men had cleared, 100 feet of open space to repel any redcoats foolish enough to attack up the slope. Despite these defenses, I'd barely slept. I don't think anyone had. The rain pounded down hour after hour without letting up. Worse, I feared the attack that the soldiers around me said could happen at any minute. Everyone kept squinting over the earthworks toward the enemy lines. About 500 yards away, redcoats were busy digging trenches, inching like ants, ever closer to our lines. Why they hadn't attacked, no one knew. The lobster box would have bagged the lot of us if they hadn't stopped, Grumbler said. It's all uphill, said a soldier. I called the mumbler. We'd slaughter them all the way up. They're afraid it would be Bunker Hill all over again. That's why they're digging siege trenches. Slaughter them? Grumbler snapped. Slaughter them? With wet powder? It was true. Along our little part of the line, most of our muskets were worthless. I heard some idiot forgot to cover the wagons carrying all the gunpowder, Grumbler said. If the British attack, all you'll hear from us is one big click. Then they'll level our bayonets and charge, and that will be the end of us, Mumbler said. We don't have any powder, and we don't have any bayonets. How are we supposed to fight? No one asked me questions, which was fine. Maybe it's because I finally had a gun, and they thought I was one of them. I'd seen a musket and an empty powder horn lying in the road during the panicked retreat to the heights, and somehow I'd had the sense to pick it up. I had no musket balls or gunpowder, but the thick wood felt good in my hands. The gun was the only thing that felt good. As dark descended for the third night since the battle, I shivered and wondered what to do. I could try to get back across the river to the city, but they might think I was a deserter, and deserters got shot. Or I could try to find Joe and the rest of the company after I'd run like a coward. Or I could stay put and wait for a bayonet assault. I'm doomed no matter what I do, I thought. Or I could look for Papa. He might be down on the battlefield, dead, but he might be alive. He'd be furious to see me so far from Saybrook, but at least he could tell me what to do. When it was dark, I eased out of the trench and began slogging my way down the line. Here and there, men were able to keep campfires going under makeshift canvas shelters. I stuck my head inside one of these tents. Any of you see Joshua Wade of the 7th Connecticut Volunteers? I asked. Eyes flicked toward my face. Some men didn't look at all, staring blankly into the pathetic little fire. Finally, one of the men shook his head. No, boy. I worked my way down the line, getting the same answer from group after group. Sorry, son. There were hundreds killed and captured, said one soldier. He might be down on the battlefield somewhere. I'd never felt lonelier in my life. 
The rain beat down mercilessly on my face and back as I walked a dark stretch of the line. Shivers shook my shoulders and arms. I was ready to curl up in a hole and wait for some redcoat to run me through with his bayonet. About 50 yards ahead, a fire pricked the darkness. One more, I thought. I'll ask one more time if they've seen Papa, and then I'll find my hole. Five men were huddled around a small fire under some coats they'd balanced on their muskets. Anyone here see Joshua Wade of the 7th Connecticut Volunteers? A man whose face was hooded by a blanket turned toward me. Nathan Wade, is that you? he asked. Cricky, it was Butch Hyde. Butch? What are you doing here? I realized it was a stupid question as soon as I blurted it out. You fool, why do you think he's here? For fun? Butch pulled the blanket down to his shoulders. Come out of the rain, Wade. The other man glanced at Butch and shifted to make room. I sat on my haunches in front of him, my rear an inch above a muddy puddle. Wet strands of hair were plastered across my forehead and face. Butch looked tired and worn. In the flickering firelight, I glimpsed an angry red gouge that ran halfway across his forehead. I was so glad to see someone I knew that I didn't care if he was my arch enemy. Did you see my mama before you left Saybrook? Butch asked. No, we had to leave fast. Butch nodded and squinted at the fire, eyes moist. I came down with David and Ezra. We built a water machine to attack the British ships in the harbor, I said. Butch grunted. I heard something about that. I guess I should have figured it was Bushnell when they said it came from Connecticut. He always has one to tinker. He always he was always one to tinker with things. Have you seen my father? I asked. Not since before the battle. We were on the old Jamaica road and about 10,000 redcoats got in our rear. We never saw them coming. It got pretty hot. We held out for a while, but there were too many of them. Butch must have noticed my long face. He's probably all right, Wade. A lot of men got scattered from their regiments during the fight. He's probably down the line somewhere. How is your father? Butch looked away. Not too good. He took a ball in the shoulder. I got him to the rear. We barely got away from their bayonets. That's where I got this. He pointed to the cut on his forehead. They took Paul across the river to the city. He sighed deeply. I had to stay here. Duty, you know. Suddenly I remembered what I'd said to Josh back in Saybrook. I hope Butch Hyde gets killed by the British. My cheeks flushed with regret. I couldn't believe I'd said something so ugly. The bullying in Saybrook seemed a thousand miles away, almost like it didn't happen. This tired, bloodied Butch didn't seem so bad. We sat watching the rain, two boys in the middle of a war, worried about our fathers. I knew I needed to keep looking for Papa, but I lingered, reluctant to give up Butch's company. Finally, I stood up. Goodbye, Butch, I said. I'm going to keep looking for Papa. Butch stood up. I hate to see you go, but that's what I'd do if I was you. He extended his hand toward me. Memories of all the humiliation I'd suffered from Butch flooded back. The taunts, the shoves, and the fear I'd felt for so many summers crowded into my mind, clamoring for revenge. The old, familiar hatred seized me. Shake his hand? Never. I was about to whirl around and stomp off, leaving his unshaken hand hanging. That would show him. I sensed a nudge within, from Providence, perhaps, telling me to let go of my anger. But Butch had hurt me, I argued. He'd done me wrong for no reason at all. For the longest second of my life, I agonized. Then I stuck out my hand. I gripped Butch's hand firmly and looked him square in the eyes. 
I couldn't believe what I said next. Butch, I'm sorry for hating you all this time. It wasn't right. Butch blinked in surprise. I don't know that you're the one who needs to be sorry, Wade. I'm the one. I cut him off. It doesn't matter. Butch shook his head. Heck, I was scared that someday you'd stand up for yourself. As big as you are, you could have whipped me. You finally did. Knocked me down in front of Rachel Pratt, remember? I was so mad. He laughed, a deep belly laugh that sounded strangely out of place in the gloomy trenches. The soldiers sitting in the tent looked at us like we were crazy. I laughed too. Yeah, I can't believe I did that. I lingered, savoring the moment. Well, I need to go. You take care, Butch. As I walked away, Butch called out, Hey, Nathan, good luck with that water machine. Sink some ships for us, all right? All right, Butch, you shoot us some redcoats. I began working my way down the line again, asking for Papa. It was the same as before. I ain't heard of him, but I also heard men talking desertion. As soon as the rain stops, the lobster backs will be on us, one soldier said. That fool Washington got, has got us trapped between the redcoats and the river. If this nor'easter didn't have their fleet bottled up in the harbor, those boats would be in our rear so quick we'd be blown to bits. There's no way out. No way out. I imagined bayonets stabbing and thrusting at my guts. The morning light would bring row upon row of redcoats from the trenches a few hundred yards away. With parade ground precision, they would level their deadly steel and charge. I tried to push the fear from my mind, but it just grew. By the time I'd worked most of the way down the line, I was so nervous I felt like throwing up. Men stood every ten feet or so in the flooded trench, staring toward the British lines. My legs numb, I stopped. Cold water splashed around my knees as I stepped down into the trench and took a place in the line. The soldier to my right nodded, and I nodded back. A few minutes later, he waded over. Have you noticed? he asked. Noticed what? Since midnight, they've been pulling regiments out of the line and spreading the rest of us out right and left. The line is getting mighty thin. I don't know if we're retreating or getting ready to attack. I don't know either, I said. I'm just looking for my father. The soldier didn't seem to hear me and returned to his post. Sure enough, a half hour later, we were ordered to shift to the right. The soldier to my right was now 30 feet away. A little later, we shifted to the right again. The man to my right was now 50 feet away. Around two in the morning, the order came for us to move out. We lined up and began trotting rearward. Think we're evacuating? I asked one man. Laura, I hope so, he said. An officer ran over, furious. Silence, he hissed. Our orders are absolute silence. If the enemy hears us moving out, they'll slaughter us like cattle. Chastened, we stole rearward, quiet as cats. We quickened our pace and we reached the end reached the road to the ferry. We're retreating, I exulted. We're getting out of here. Darkness shrouded the ferry. In the moonlight, hundreds of soldiers stood waiting. Officers on horseback moved about keeping order and issuing quiet commands. Beyond them, small boats dotted the East River. Long boats, whale boats, sailboats. Loud shouting broke the calm. A group of soldiers was trying to force their way onto a crowded boat. A tall officer rode up, swung down from his mount, and pushed his way over to them. He picked up a large rock and held it over the boat. Get off, or I'll sink this boat to hell, he shouted. The rebellious men backed away. A vast, respectful silence filled the area around the ferry. The evacuation resumed. That was General Washington, 
the man in front of me whispered. He'd have sunk it, too. The crowd in front of us slowly shrank as the boats continued their endless two-mile round trips between Long Island and New York. General Washington rode up to several officers standing near us. Good God, General Mifflin, I would not have expected you to abandon your post, Washington exclaimed. Sir, we didn't abandon our post. I did it by your order, General Mifflin replied. It can't be. By God, I did. Did Scammell act as your aide for the day, or did he not? He did. There you are, Mifflin said. I got the order through him. Washington frowned and shook his head. It was a dreadful mistake. You must return immediately to your posts. We will have terrible consequences if the enemy sees we aren't there. My heart sank. Back to the trenches? Filled with dread, I slunk back to the earthworks with the rest of the regiment. In the distance were the silhouettes of the British sentries. They didn't seem to have noticed our absence. The dark edge of the eastern horizon was softening. Dawn was coming and death would not be far behind, I thought in despair. The rain was slackening. When the storm ended, the British would attack. We weren't going to be saved after all. There simply wasn't enough time. Hey, a voice hissed. A soldier, standing about 30 feet to my right, was waving me over. As I walked toward him, he turned to his right and waved another soldier over. We stood on a muddy patch of grass above the trench. The man who had waved me over was short and wore tattered buckskin. The other soldier was about my height, with piercing blue eyes and long, ragged hair. The short man looked up at us and asked shyly, Do either of you fellows know the part of the Bible about the shepherd in the valley? He looked over at the British lines. I'm thinking we need some help pretty dang quick. The rain is easing up, and once it quits, they'll be coming over. The blue-eyed man considered this for a moment. The 23rd Psalm, he said finally. I know it. Or how it starts, anyway. If you can get it started, it might spark my memory, said the short man. He looked at me. How about you? To be honest, I couldn't remember a bit of it. In church, I'd heard all the Psalms and a bunch more of the Bible, and on Sunday afternoons, when I was little, Papa had read the scriptures to us. But I felt so crushed down with fear, I could barely breathe, much less remember something about a shepherd. I think I could manage a bit of it, I said. Here it goes, then, said the blue-eyed man. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He looked into the distance like he was looking for words and shrugged. That's all I remember. The short man picked up where the blue-eyed man had left off. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, though I walk the blue-eyed man. Yeah, explained the short man. Yeah, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, though I walk through the dadgum valley of the shadow of death, I don't remember anymore. These two men, the two men looked at me expectantly. I was staring at my boots locked up with fear. I closed my eyes and rocked back and forth a bit. Providence, please help me remember. Suddenly, words popped into my head. I will fear no evil, I said quietly, for thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Yup, there you go, said the short man. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. 
Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I opened my eyes. That's all I remember. I think that's all there is, the blue-eyed man said. The rain had ended. It was light enough to see the distant outlines of the British fortifications. An officer was walking our lines, giving instructions. Men, if you've got any dry powder, charge your weapon, he said. If the redcoats come, aim low. Make them pay for every step. Son, let me charge your gun, the short man said. I stashed some powder that didn't get wet. After he loaded my gun, I walked back toward my spot on the line. I felt strangely calm. Let the redcoats come. I'll get off a shot and then... I decided not to think about it. Before I stepped into the trench, I glanced down at my boots. Strange, I couldn't see them. They were covered in cotton? I looked around the earthworks. My goodness, I realized with a start it was fog. A dense, molasses-thick fog was rising off the ground. Great and wonderful, billowy masses of fog. Fog, fog, fog! In minutes, the air was so white I couldn't see five feet in front of me. The short soldier was cackling. (laughs) Hey, boys, he hollered. Looks like we're going to get off this island after all. The redcoats can't attack through this. I curled up in the cold mud and basked in the luxuriant white cloud like it was a thick, warm blanket. For the first time in three days, I I fell sound asleep. I dreamt I was in the loft at the Bushnells, Ezra's familiar snore beside me. I pulled the blanket over my head and was drifting off to sleep when I heard the splat, splat of horse hooves on mud outside the house. Then, the most beautiful words I'd ever heard passed through the blanket into my ears. Regiment, prepare to move out.